welcome to the Deeper Listening Podcast. My name is John Peru, and I'm here with my co-host, Justin Bruce. We want to help you discover new music from bands that you already know and bands that you don't. And we're by no means music experts. I'm a meteorologist. John's a bookseller. We're a couple of middle-aged dads who enjoy finding new music, whether it's new now or just new to us. And we love learning more about the music and the bands that we already know. So we want to take you along for the ride. We plan to do this through a series of listening projects. Sometimes we'll know the bands and other times we won't. We'll look into an artist's catalog, either in part or in full, and we'll use the idea of deeper listening to give the well-known stuff context and to find the hidden gems that make being a music fan so rewarding. I think of each episode as a music primer for an artist. And with that in mind, let's do some deeper listening to an indie band, John, that I'm not sure you've ever heard of. We're going to talk about Pearl Jam. Now, Pearl Jam in the 90s, was there a bigger American band? I mean, they were neck and neck with Nirvana, the Red Hot Chili Peppers early in the 90s. For me, they had more universal appeal. I liked U2 growing up and Nirvana and even the Red Hot Chili Peppers and then Radiohead later down the road. But Pearl Jam was my jam. It was my consistent 90s band. And their 90s albums were in my heavy rotation. Now, that said, I don't know anything about Pearl Jam after the late 90s. I don't know about you, John, but I got more into fish, collecting shows, and Pearl Jam after Yield and Live on Two Legs kind of fell by the wayside for me. Yeah, so for me, that really happened after Vitology. Um, I loved the first three albums when they first came out. Played them on constant rotation. They're the kind of albums that when I think back and listen back to them, they immediately put me back into the time and place where where I was when I heard them the first time. Um, but for me, you know, and, and right around 95 was when I fell kind of into the same jam band rabbit hole. And it's probably worth noting for everybody else that Justin and I know each other uh, because we found each other online because we're both we're both fans of the band Fish. Um, so I think that both of us kind of fell down that same that same rabbit hole. So for me, I listened a lot to to 10. I listened a lot to verses and Vitology. And then I went to boarding school in 1995, was introduced to uh, to Fish and the Grateful Dead. And that was that was it for me. I really, you know, I, I really stopped listening at that point. So one thing I think that's really important to mention here is that in a similar vein to uh, to Fish and to the Grateful Dead, Pearl Jam has an enormous like live following. And, uh, you know, for the purposes of, of what we're talking about today, um, you know, I, I don't think we can get into that too, too much. But it is important to note that there is a there is a rabid fan base that still follows the band around we'll go to multiple shows out of a tour and things like that. So, you know, so for the fans like that, that are out there, we, we see you and we hope that we can do some of this justice. Yeah. It's really interesting. I uh, have been listening to a lot of Pearl Jam to get ready for this podcast, Pearl Jam that I I've never heard because like I said, I kind of, kind of fell off the wagon after uh, yield came out in 98 and, but live on two legs, which was like one of their first big live albums that they released also in 98. I listened to it a ton. Like that's my soundtrack to high school other than when I was getting into fish and listening to some studio fish and some of the first like official live fish releases like slip stitch and pass. And I don't know if I've ever listened to a band more, uh, at least up until that point in, in, in high school in the nineties than Pearl jam. It is pretty wild because that's the only live Pearl jam album that I've listened to, but their official discography is like littered with all of these live releases. Yeah. And, you know, and for me, it, it was really the same thing. It was, you know, for me, I don't know if it was Pearl Jam and Nirvana that I listened to more. I was really just completely obsessed with both bands. 
um, you know, and, and I've, I've actually been able to see Pearl Jam live uh, more than once, you know, but it, I had no idea that they, that they had the type of following that they, that they do and that they still enjoy that following. And that was, uh, that was really interesting to me. So um, I guess to dig into uh, to the first album um, that we chose to talk about, we're going to start out with, uh, with, with, I guess, leaving Pearl Jam in the 90s. And, and, and I guess we'll pick up more in like the middle period Pearl Jam. I do want to note that for me, I had not ever heard um, No Code or Yield coming into this project. And I've got to say, I am so upset with myself for <laughs> having not done that because both of those albums, I mean, the first five albums, honestly, you would be hard to, you know, to find a whole lot of bands that have a stronger first five albums that they, that they've put out, um, you know, yield uh, immediately upon listening to it. I probably, I probably listened to it a dozen times through at the conclusion of going through this project. When I ranked all of my Pearl Jam albums, yielded it up to number two for me. And I mean, that, you know, that really is saying something to have discovered this album less than a month ago, you know, from a band that I absolutely loved. And, you know, that album is so, so good, you know, and, and No Code really was the same thing. I listened to it and was like, I cannot, like, I'm so mad at myself for not, for not getting into this earlier. This is like one, one time where I can feel okay about myself then, because I was definitely still on the PJ train through No Code and Yield and Live on Two Legs, like I mentioned, and it took me maybe like a little longer to figure out uh, Fish and their live shows and, and whatnot. But yeah, the first five Pearl Jam studio albums, I feel like everybody knows, which is why kind of the premise of, including you now, which is why the premise of our podcast is going to be to talk about what I guess is what the last five Pearl Jam studio albums, which encompasses 20 years, 21 years now of, of making music. So I suppose we'll get into Binaural, uh, which had some interesting competition, wouldn't you say, uh, to top the charts when it came out? Yeah, you know, and so this one, interestingly enough, it actually n- did not hit number one. I believe it was the first of their, of their albums to not hit number one. And that was because uh, Britney Spears uh, knocked him off the list with Oops, I Did It Again, which, you know, <laughs> it's a banger. I mean, you know, what are you going to do? Really um, takes you back to the time and place. Although uh, I have to say that Yield wasn't number one because of the Titanic soundtrack in 1998. It was number two. But you're right. Binaural didn't didn't ever go platinum. And it also did not achieve number one status because of, yeah, that big other jam band act, uh, Britney Spears. So, you know, for me, this album really didn't click on the first listen. Um, and honestly, I think that a lot of it was, uh, was the product of, of the conditions in which I was listening to it. Um, I went on a run for the first time in three months. It was below freezing outside. So I was just miserable and bitter cold the entire time that I was listening to it. So as I was uh, getting around mile three, I was, you know, what was going through my head about this album was essentially that, you know, this album is Starbucks. You know, especially when I compared it, because I was listening to No Code and Yield as new experiences for me. And then going into this one, to me, it was a really big dip from uh, from the previous two. And and after repeated listens, it definitely grew on me some. But but what what really stuck in my head was that this this album was Starbucks in the sense that it was kind of created for mass appeal. Um, you know, there was there was not they weren't really breaking new ground or really even like giving you a deeper understanding of the ground that they had been you know, that they had treaded on so well, you know, this album for me ended up kind of towards the bottom of the, of the list for me. There was, there were some things on it that I, that I did like. Um, but I think that, uh, Justin, I think that you probably like this one a little bit more than I did. And I'm not here to, uh, I don't want, I don't want to bash an album because I did, you know, with any Pearl Jam album, there's not one that I just don't like, but there's some that I'm probably not going to return to. And this is on that list for me. 
Uh, but I think that you like this one a little more than me. I think that like half of the songs on Binaural are, are, are pretty good. And it's interesting how different they sound between 98 and Yield and 2000 and Binaural. But uh, apparently the band had some challenges, like Eddie Vedder had writer's block. And at the very end of Binaural, there's a little secret track. It's not as cool as Green Day's Dookie uh, all by myself at the super end of that album. But there's like some typewriter clickety clackitiness uh, at the very end of Binaural. And that was an homage to his writer's block. Matter of fact, the first single from Binaural, uh, Nothing As It Seems, which is kind of like a has bluesy guitar. It's like down tempo. It's minor key. But the lyrics weren't even written by Eddie Vedder. They were written by the bassist, Jeff Ahmed, which I mean is kind of wild to consider and then there's these other minor key album or minor key songs in the middle of the album that just kind of slow things down and and don't have like a lot to say of course we did a little research online and found out that some of the songs are talking about important things like the wto protest in seattle and there's even a song that references the columbine shootings uh or shooting but they're not saying things in a very overt fashion on binaural. Mike McCready, uh, one of the guitar players, was having a tough stretch in his life. I guess he he went to rehab for pain pills. That said, they do get binaural going on like a pretty pretty good start. Breaker fall. Uh, it's up tempo and it's high energy, and that is a theme that we're going to visit over and over and over again with all of these Pearl Jam albums. The first four tracks on Binaural are actually pretty great. The other single that I really like, and I think is my favorite from the whole album, is Light Years. And it's just a big earworm. I've found myself kind of singing it and humming it to myself over and over and over these last couple of weeks as we've done our deep dive here. Not 100% sure what it's about. The lyrics kind of talk about loss. I don't know if it's a breakup or death but then the chorus kind of feels bright and optimistic and that's also a theme that mature mid and latter pearl jam albums tend to kind of hint or get at it's like things are like a little minor key but then in the chorus eddie vetter kind of presents us even just with the sound of his voice with some optimism which i think is really cool well, one thing that, I, that I've noticed about Pearl Jam, you know, now that you say that, that really I've always found interesting is they do have a way of combining the music can set really can kind of set the tone for, for a lot of the things that Eddie is saying. And, you know, and I, I find that, you know, there's something in a couple of albums to come that, you know, the way that the music sounded with what with what was being said, that those two things in combination delivered such a potent message to me. There are some bands like, you know, Radiohead is famous for having, you know, for having just very dark lyrics that are played over over relatively happy sounding songs, you know. And I think that Pearl Jam does a really good job of kind of combining what it is that they're talking about in the in the the mood i guess of what they're talking about with the i guess the sonic attributes of the song one interesting thing that pops up for us fish fans which as you mentioned is something that we're both into fast forward to 2004 fishes or was it yeah it was 2004 when undermined came out tumultuous time for fish they're breaking up the new album comes out and uh chad blake is the producer well Come to find out, Chad Blake produced this gem of a Pearl Jam album in 2000. (laughs) 
I don't I mean, I'm sure he's got a lot of incredible albums to his credit. And I, I kind of like Undermine, although I love Round Room way, way, way more. This is the first album where they're not with uh, Brendan O'Brien, who had pretty much been along throughout the 90s for them. And I, I wonder if that maybe had anything to do with it. And also you pointed out uh, there's a new drummer in the mix, the Soundgarden drummer, who had been playing with them for uh, like a couple of years. I guess he hopped, Matt Cameron is his name. He hopped on uh, during the Yield tour, but this is binaural, his first time in the studio with the band. You know, and I think that that might be, honestly, because I really like Matt Cameron. I really like Soundgarden. Uh, for me, it actually, if, I feel like it takes Matt Cameron a couple of, a couple of albums before he feels really like a part of Pearl Jam. And I think that, you know, in this album, to me, it's like, you know, the, the drumming sticks out. Uh, and I think that actually when you and I talked about this, you know, in, in a previous conversation, you know, one of the things that you had said is that the drumming kind of sticks out, but not necessarily in a great way all the time. And that, you know, that kind of stuck with me for this one and not as much in Riot Act as, as, as it did in this one. But then when they get to Avocado, you know, or the self-titled album, you know, he feels like he has very much become a part of the band and, and, and been there all along, you know. So I think that that might also be part of the reason that I had a little bit more trouble connecting with this record. Yeah. And I think my main takeaway as we leave Binaural in the Dust here is that a lot of the middle and the end of the album seems like, yeah, maybe the band didn't didn't have a lot to say, not only lyrically, but also just kind of a lot of bummer songs. And that can be a great thing. I like lots of weird music and it doesn't always have to be up tempo and 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 make you happy, but after those first four or five tracks, like uh, it's it's not an album that I'm going to revisit. And truth be told, of the five Pearl Jam albums that we're going to talk about here from 2000 forward, I think I think this is probably my least favorite. Yeah, you know, I, I think that I would agree with that. Well, actually, there, there's one other <laughs> for me that you know <laughs> I, I would put this one above the above that one. But you know, there's of the of the later period albums, there are there are two. There's actually six that, that, that we'll talk about today. Thinking about the later period albums, there's four of them that I will I will likely not return to very often. And then there are two of them that I'm going to go back to pretty regularly, I think. With Gigaton coming out, you know, last year, that that was that was one that, that you know, I, I may have made more of an impression on, on me than it did on you. But, but that was an album that I really, really liked. We'll get to that in good time. And you're right. That's the scientist in me showing himself uh, six albums that we're going to get into and not, not five. <laughs> the last thing that I want to mention about Binaural is the biggest tragedy. Uh, in the band's history happens as they're touring in Europe for this album uh, in Denmark at this big music festival. I believe it's pronounced Roskilde, but nine people die. This mass of humanity is essentially crushed up toward the, the front of the crowd. And I mean, Pearl Jam, who had been a band for about 10 years at this point in 2000, they actually thought about breaking up. It just kind of seemed like maybe this was a good time to, to call quits but they did carry on and they ended up touring in the U.S., although they would not have open seating on like uh, floors and they would not play festivals for, for some time. So this is kind of another dark element. I think the song that I would like to pick from Binaural to play a snippet from is Light Years. Would you be OK with that? Do you want to pick something weirder, darker and more depressing? No, you know, I, I think that I agree with you. I think that that was probably my favorite cut on the on the whole record. So let's, uh, you know, let's let's have a listen.
All right. So in 2002, uh, the band came out with a new album, Riot Act. Um, this album was also not one that I particularly cared for on first listen. But of, of the later period albums that I was not crazy about, this one is probably at, at the top of my list because there are several songs on this album that, that, that really stand out to me as being really, really strong songs. Especially on like, you know, if you look at albums as side one, side two, the first side of this album to me is particularly strong. I Am Mine stands out as probably my favorite uh, that's on that's on this, you know, followed closely by Can't Keep. I think this album, just to put it simply, has a higher batting average than Binaural. And there are way less throwaway songs for me personally. And I agree, I Am Mine, you know, the first single kind of feels like grown up Pearl Jam. It feels familiar from all of our 90s listening experience, but it feels like they're a little more mature. Kind of like the song we picked, Light Years. It can give you chills and kind of has like a bit of emotional heft. And this song, uh, which is pretty crazy to consider, was written before the show in a hotel room that they played after the Roskilde tragedy, which is kind of crazy to consider. And the lyrics and I'm not going to do them justice and I'm not going to sing, but Eddie Vedder talks about the feeling it gets left behind all the innocence lost at one time, which is the nod to the festival and the nine deaths significant behind the eyes. There's no need to hide. We're safe tonight. So it's just props to a grown man in Eddie Vedder for talking about what he's feeling. Like that's one thing that I've really come to appreciate about Pearl Jam as we've listened to a lot of this mid to, to late period stuff. It reminded me of a 96 uh, song from No Code uh, called Present Tense, which is a great song that everybody should check out. Hey, there's a smart dude. I, you know, Adam Sandler used to bust his chops for kind of having a mush mouth. And like, I, I've never looked at more lyrics online than I have with Pearl Jam. And I'm glad that I do all the time because like, I want to know what he's saying. And it's kind of hard for me to know sometimes to, to sort of pick out what he is saying. Although he does get a little more clear in his delivery as, as the albums progress. I am mine. What a great first single to pick from Riot Act. I agree. You know, and, and I, I really agree with your, with what you had to say about, about Eddie Vedder and his lyrics and, you know, and just how he kind of presents himself as a person, you know, it, it's funny because when you read what the critics have to say about this period of Pearl Jam, it's just brutal. Some of them at least, you know, especially like, you know, when you get into what Pitchfork is talking about, it's just, you know, if it's, if it's a, you know, quote unquote legacy band and they still sound like they did when they, you know, when they wrote their, their best material, then the Pitchfork's just brutal to them. But one of the things that they, you know, that they have said is that Eddie Vedder, you know, is personally responsible for launching a thousand nickelbacks, you know, because of his, because of his lyrical style. And it's funny because it's like, you know, there's not a lot of bands that I guess that you would really point to as Pearl Jam being heavily, being heavily influential who were great after Pearl Jam, you know what I mean? So it's like Pearl Jam has really pulled it off well. And then any better with his lyrics, he, in a, in a, in a manner of speaking, was really ahead of his time with his emotional intelligence. You know, like he really can, you know, he really seems to feel things very deeply. And, you know, it starts out with some of the songs that are even on the first album, you know, being in your being in your 20s and, and being able to talk that cogently about, you know, pretty heavy topics is something that he's really good at, you know, and, and, and to your point, like with this song with, you know, finding a way and, you know, in two lines to sum up this huge tragedy in a way that, that you know, you can tell that he feels and it makes you feel, you know, as, as, as part of his genius. I wonder if that maybe has something to do with the fact that 
other than the ukulele later on in his career that he doesn't play an instrument. So, you know, Pearl Jam was this like formed group when they tapped him to join in 90 or 91 or whenever it was. And it's like, as the vocalist, even though he's the face of Pearl Jam and most people would have a tough time, maybe naming even all the other members of the band. Like, I wonder if that sort of forced him into really having to go there lyrically, or if it was, you know, this guy has had this crazy life. And if you listen to like a live from 10 and like, Oh, Hey, the guy you thought was, was your dad, isn't your dad and your real dad's dead. And Holy smokes. Like he's, it sounds like he's got a lot to draw from. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and I don't know, obviously I don't know about what his personal experience is, but you get the impression that it was, it was rough going, you know, when, when he was, when he was coming up, you know, and it's funny too, because I've seen a couple of performances where, where he's actually, you know, I, where he has a guitar, you know, but it's like, it's one of those things where it's almost like, looks like a stage prop, you know, like you wonder if it's even plugged in, you know? <laughs> so, but it's, I, and I agree with you. It's like when you, you know, when your voice is what you're contributing, you know, then what you have to say, I think becomes more important, you know, and, and we've seen that with other bands that we like where, you know, where if the, if the vocalist is also like the lead guitar player, as an example, a lot of times the vocals don't take on the same, you know, the same depth and weight that, you know, that they do when it's just a solo vocalist. Yeah. It's interesting on the opener here to Riot Act. And again, like all Pearl Jam albums, it feels like they just hit the ground running at the gate with up-tempo songs, but can't keep kind of reminds me of earlier Pearl Jam and when I was looking back at some of the 90s albums, uh, there's sort of this division in, in, in my mind for Pearl Jam. You know, they've got their kind of punk, noisy songs. They've got their ballads. You know, even going back to verses, you've got elderly woman behind the counter in a small town. I think that was on verses. Uh, or daughter, which was on verses. Uh, and then you've got, as they go from uh, Vitology into No Code, like almost what I tell myself uh, are tribal songs where there's just kind of this rhythmic vibe and can't keep the opener to Riot Act is definitely in that tribal uh, sort of categorization for me. Another song that we talked about, maybe we didn't love it at first, but we kind of came around to it is Love Boat Captain, which gives us an opportunity to introduce uh, the new keyboardist to Pearl Jam. They had never had one, but Eddie met this guy through the Ramones of all things in Hawaii. I think his name is Boom Casper. And uh, he helped write Love Boat Captain or it emerged out of a jam session. Uh, and it's kind of a cool song too. It really is a cool song. And it, and, it, and it actually turned out to be one of my favorite songs on the entire album. I did not want to like this song, primarily just because I think that the, you know, the, the, the title of the song is just awful. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, it just, the title of the song does not evoke what, you know, what, what comes out of the song. But man, like, you know, when I go back to, when I have gone back to this album since listening to it the first time, this is one of the tracks that I look forward to, to hearing. This is one of the ones that, you know, I, I just, for whatever reason, I, I had an aversion to, I think just because of the title, uh, but really, really turned out to like. And in a good illustration of me having to look up a lot of Pearl Jam lyrics, I actually thought it was a bit darker than it actually is. I thought Love Boat Captain's lyrics were, Love Boat Captain, take the reins, steer us toward the cliff. Turns out he's saying, steer us towards the clear. 
which is kind of a big difference. I know it's already been sung. It can't be said enough. Love is all you need. And you kind of connect the dots when you listen closely to a lot of Pearl Jam that that's definitely like a thesis for Eddie Vedder is like, love is a big deal. It's just kind of funny from like a heavy quote unquote band like Pearl Jam that that's what's going on lyrically, you know, from this guy with this deep sort of masculine voice, but it's cool. Oh, it is. And it's, you know, and it's one of those things where it's like, you know, and I guess that that maybe is the, it's kind of an interesting way to, to look at the fact that when you, when you have had some dark things that have happened and when you, you know, when you've had what appears to be some trauma in your life and things like that, that, you know, although you can very clearly articulate what you're angry about, you know what I mean? Like understanding what's on the other side of that is pretty cool too, because that's like the, the whole resolution of the, of the entire cycle of anger is to get back to, you know, what's actually important. A lot of bands are kind of too afraid to go to actually go there to you know right. move beyond the precipice of anger and sort of look a look ahead. Of course, you know, Riot Act 2000. Uh, so we're talking about Bush versus Gore versus Nader, and they very directly address the president in uh, Bush Leaguer, which, you know, is like really showing Pearl Jam's political side. I was going to say, I mean, you, you never, you never have, uh, you never have to guess what, what side uh, Pearl Jam falls on when it comes to politics. Yeah, which is totally true. And one of those things, it's like when you're online now and you see Tom Morello responding to tweets like, what's the deal with Rage Against the Machine getting political? Like you wonder <laughs> if all the Pearl Jam fans at Wrigley Field know exactly where the band stands. But yes, if you listen to the lyrics, you kind of know. But they actually stirred up a little bit of controversy by playing the song Bush Leaguer, which I think was one of the singles uh, eventually released off a of riot act. Cause I guess Eddie Vedder would have this George W. Bush mask and he would sort of, you know, bandy it about on stage. But apparently after one of the shows, the crowd's kind of booing him or at least some of the crowd is booing him. So a reminder, 2000 was a really edgy political time, which sort of does inform some of the songs here on riot act for sure. Another thing to mention, uh, we've got a new producer, uh, not Chad Blake. He was busy looking ahead to working with Fish a couple of years off down the road, <laughs> perhaps. But a longtime engineer uh, for Pearl Jam is now taking the uh, production reins. And to be honest, I don't really have any major complaints about the sounds of Riot Act. There are a couple of songs in the middle of the album that don't do a whole lot for me. But, you know, that'll happen to the best of bands, I suppose. I noticed that the... I guess the overall production quality and binaural for me was, you know, it was very bass heavy, you know, and it was, it was muddy, I guess was the best way to put it. I feel like that improved a lot with Riot Act. When we get into the next album, I feel like they, they figured out, they, they figured it out and it really unlocked a lot of, a lot of things. I love the way the next album sounds. So, you know, another thing about this one too, is uh, there's a song on this album called Help Help, which I'm not sure if Pearl Jam fans are really into this song. I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure who listens to this and is like, all right, I dig this song. This is probably, it's probably my favorite one on the entire album. And it's just for me because it's like what it sounds like to me. And this, you know, part of this is is the way that Pearl Jam can kind of speak to your, you know, I guess Pearl Jam can speak emotionally to things that, that you've been through. Having been somebody that has, you know, in my past has struggled with addiction myself. 
you know, and I know that McCready went through this and there's, you know, I, I believe there's been other members of the band that have struggled with addiction. To me, it's like, this sounds like, like this, like, it's almost like this underwater sound, you know, and, and with what they're talking about, you know, it sounds to me like being in the throes of addiction and like trying to like, trying to like climb your way out of that. You know, it's like, because there's this like swirling kind of underwater sound to it. And it's like, you know, and there's some cool parts to it. Right. And it's like, you know, you don't get, you don't get sucked into addiction, addiction because some of it's not cool. You know what I mean? But it's like, but you get the impression that it's like, it's getting pretty desperate, I guess, in, in parts of this song. And again, I, I don't know where like the, the hardcore Pearl Jam fans stand on that one, but that one for me, I loved. I think we should cap our discussion of Riot Act then and there. And I'm going to make the executive decision that we play uh, a clip from Help Help as we wrap up Riot Act from 2002. into an album that has an avocado on the cover 2006 self-titled pearl jam uh, aka to the hardcore fans avocado someone needs to tell grateful dead archivist david lemieux about this one he's a noted <laughs> avocado fan i think we both love this album we love how fresh it is and it seems like pearl jam gets their groove back it's really cool and it's it just feels energetic and whatever funk we had in 2000 and 2002 that is years removed in the rearview mirror and it's awesome yeah i agree and you know and this was one i really 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 liked this album um there was a couple of things that i read about it that really made a lot of sense one of those was that when they went into the studio to record this album they did not have a single completed song so they worked together you know, as a band to, to really write this entire album and to do it in a way that was, that was very democratic. And to me, it, it really shows all the songs, I guess, that were picked as like the singles or whatever, you know, from, from this album, they're all great, you know, and there's, to me, it's like, this sounds like it could just as easily be, you know, it could just as easily have been written right on the heels of, of yield to me. You know, I, I really, really liked it. Um, you know, several songs on this album that I thought that I thought were great. Yeah, and one thing that I read about uh, Avocado is that they basically took creative liberties in that it wasn't just Eddie Vedder writing songs from his perspective. And this is a totally random aside, but one thing that I always think about when I'm thinking about Pearl Jam, because they came up in the 90s, how rich do all those guys have to be? So it is funny hearing about these <laughs> like, you know, existential uh crises that they're putting forth in their lyrics and then you think oh i wonder if he was in his mansion in seattle or his mansion in la or his mansion in hawaii somewhere when he was writing it but it doesn't have anything to do with anything but it's just like these guys were humongous when you actually made a ton of money selling albums and they sold a ton of albums um but it is cool that they came in 
to the writing process and into the studio uh, without a whole lot on paper. And I think the fact that they didn't have to write from their own perspective really kind of was freeing for them. Like Eddie Vedder, the millionaire is not going to write a song about losing his job, but a great song on avocado is unemployable, which is a little later into the album, but it's a good story about economic anxiety from someone's perspective who just got fired gone, which was one of the singles released from this album is kind of about dreaming about leaving your material possessions behind and thinking about the freedom that that would lend oneself and then there was a really neat song that I liked that I thought was really well done. Kind of an anti-war song, which Pearl Jam is no stranger to. And again, in 2006, you know, we're in the throes of the Iraq war in the Afghanistan conflict, but Army Reserve, which was written from the perspective of a family of a soldier kind of back at home, sort of wrestling with the idea of like, is this worth it? at least that's the song's perspective. And I think that that's like really clever and more than being clever, it's just really kind of honest and kind of gets deep into the core of like patriotism. And it's a really, really great song, just knowing the lyrical content, even like music aside. So all that said, there are these great sort of substantive tracks later in the album, but it's Pearl Jam. So of course they're going to start off the album with a banger. And I love... I love, 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 uh, what is it, Life Wasted, the opening track here? It's so great. What do you think about it? Uh, yeah, 100%. I mean, it's, it's, a great, it's a great song. And, you know, and like you said, probably the thing that I'm the most fond of with Pearl Jam is that, you know, when you open up, when you put on the album for the first time, the first cut that you're going to hear is going to be good, you know, and you're, and you're going to enjoy it. You're going to bob your head whether you want to or not. You know, it, it's coming, you know, and, and they, they really do a good job of setting the tone of, of an album. Again, you know, I think that a lot of this speaks to, you know, I agree. I really agree with your with your evaluation there. And I think that it really speaks again to somebody like Eddie Vedder with his emotional intelligence is that he is able to kind of empathically look at situations that he may not be personally involved in, but that he can still feel on what appears to be a pretty deep level, you know, and he can write about it from the perspective of somebody who is probably hurting. You know, and and I think that he's able to kind of dig into what that would feel like and write from that perspective, you know, and that is something that that requires, a, you know, a level of emotional intelligence that, that, frankly, a lot of people don't have. And this is, I think, a really good album because it has some depth. And that's illustrated in the fact that this Army Reserve song that I mentioned from the family's perspective uh, is not the only kind of song addressing war one of the singles worldwide suicide which is like totally sounds like pearl jam Uh, that's also you know more or less an anti-war song but instead of being like down in the dark depths of depression like it felt like they were sometimes in 2002 on riot act and in 2000 on binaural but there's like a different vibe kind of more of a hey we all have to come together and try to be proactive and do something about this on worldwide suicide and part of that is communicated just by it's like an up-tempo kind of thrasher of a song uh, so that's kind of a cool aspect to consider also eddie vetter apparently had a daughter at this point in time so you know he's not just fighting for you know his own beliefs now you know he's thinking about the next generation and i'm sure as like an artist and a songwriter you know, once you start looking a hundred years into the future, instead of, you know, within your own sort of time frame, that's also got to kind of expand your horizon and maybe even embolden you a little bit to 
say things even a little more directly, which I feel like is a trend that we get here on Avocado. I, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, you're, you're fighting for something that's not necessarily that you didn't maybe, maybe, you know, and I think that Eddie Vedder had had children prior to this, but, you know, I think that when you, when you do have kids, you know, you're, it's an, it's an immediate perspective shift, you know, and, and I think that he was able to translate that into, you know, into some of the songwriting. When, when you're fighting for your family, as opposed to just fighting for yourself, sometimes, sometimes the fight can get a little more ferocious. And this album, really, I guess to, to summarize this album for me, it's the first album since No Code that I absolutely will go back to. After I ran through all these albums the first time, it was the first one that I returned to. Really, really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I really feel like Matt Cameron kind of came into his own with the band in this in this album. I was actually really surprised to, to learn that it was the same, you know, producer and engineer on this album as it was in the prior two, because to me, just the sound of this album, it's not as muddy. The separation is better. It's, you know, it's it, it sounds it's just a it's a better sounding album to me. And it sounds like it was produced by somebody different, but maybe it was because they were approaching it from a different perspective. It's a pretty wild tonal shift, yeah, to go from 2002 and Riot Act uh, to this. So, yeah, that is pretty impressive. Now, I will ask you, because I'm not 100% sure what I would necessarily choose. What do you think we should give the folks who are listening uh, a taste of from Avocado, a.k.a. Pearl Jam? They start off the album really well with Life Wasted. And I think that that's uh, probably a good, a good cut to, you know, to give you a flavor of, of what you're going to be into. Fast forward three years, we go to 2009, which was when I joined Twitter, which seems like a really long time ago. We're going to talk about Backspacer. They give some creative control to their old producer, buddy, Brendan O'Brien, who produced everything through the 90s, and he's back. This is a short album. This is up-tempo. There are no bummer songs because I think they finally figured out that we're not going to play those in concert anyway, and as you had alluded to, Pearl Jam is a pretty uh, big live band and that's going to inform what they're doing in the studio, which I feel like is always a good thing. So instead of writing things five or 10 times through like Eddie Vedder supposedly did um, the last couple of albums, he, he says that he wrote the songs to backspace or each in about a half hour or so. So if I can jump in here real quick, um, I just want to say that that learning that actually makes this album make a, make a lot more sense to me. Um, I found the album to be fairly unfocused and knowing now that the songs were, I guess, not labored over and written quickly makes that make a little bit more sense. You know, again, there's just not a Pearl Jam album that I just don't like. And I, you know, I did not like this album, but this was definitely in, in the lower tier of the, of the albums that I listened to of all of all the albums I would listen to I would listen to all of them again but this is not one that I would you know 
this is not one that I would immediately, you know, think, think to go back to. And, and, you know, to me, I don't really, I don't really find anything on this album to be like that thing that like got my, that got me moving. Well, to your point, the album starts off pretty fast, like up tempo pace and lyrically the first few tracks are, they are kind of dumb, but it's just refreshing to hear this like up tempo kind of more of a nod to like their punk, noisy, thrashy, kind of a style i'm more into this uh, album i think musically at least in the beginning Uh, i do remember hearing the fixer Uh, that was one of the singles even though i didn't listen to any of these albums in full uh through this point in the 2000s but what i like about it is it is a lot of drums and a lot of guitar and they are high energy and this just sounds like the kind of song that they knew that they'd be able to bust out on tour and kind of invigorate the crowd, but also step away from some of the songs from the 90s that people are hoping to hear when they go see Pearl Jam. And then we get into the ballad, and Eddie Vedder is stepping up his ballad game, I feel like, as he gets older and older. Just Breathe reminded me of the Into the Wild soundtrack, but it wasn't on that. It was its own thing. But it is a gorgeous song. You have to admit that. I, I absolutely do. And that was, you know, Just Breathe was definitely my favorite cut on the entire album. And, you know, that one, that one did resonate with me, you know, so, and again, I'm not, I'm not coming from the perspective of, of like trying to, you know, to completely dismantle the album, you know, I mean, I think that, that a lot of bands out there would, you know, would, would sell off limbs to be able to write an album this good, you know, but it's just coming from what, from what I already know, it definitely didn't stick out to me. One of the next songs that, that comes up on the album was, you know, was Amongst the Waves. And uh, I think that you had said that, that was a single of theirs. And, you know, what came up to me, like, this is this was where for me I had to, you know, I had to be like, okay, um, you know, I listened to this song and what went through my head was if there was a point break too, this song would be the soundtrack to that, to that movie. <laughs> so that was like, I just couldn't, didn't like it at all. <laughs> you didn't like it for that reason. I thought that was a good thing in your book. Interesting. I think Amongst the Waves, the one thing that I really like about it is it is that up-tempo ballad where he's sort of approaching some kind of emotional content, but he's doing it in a way that's kind of positive vibes uh, without being hokey. And I kind of dig that. And I think that that's something that mature Pearl Jam is able to do even more and more routinely, especially when you hit the chorus and it feels like, you know, maybe he, changes uh, the way that he's singing and goes into the next vocal range or the next key. I'm obviously not a musician, but it's, I, I like it. I think the best song on Backspacer is kind of the headiest song or the most thoughtful song. And I ride my mountain bike a lot here in Las Vegas. I try not to get heat exhaustion in the summer. My riding partner Shout out to Christian in case he ever listens to this. But he texted me when I told him we were doing some deep dives into Pearl Jam. He's like, unknown thought, or excuse me, unthought known. Very clever there, Pearl Jam. He was like, it's incredible. And I feel like it is a magnificent song. I'm not even 100% sure what it's about, but it just hits on all the right feels. And it kind of of reminded me of Wishlist which I know is a bit new to you. I think that starts off yield, but that's a song where we're painting verbal imagery, but it's just the combo of the music and the lyrics just paints this really kind of grand 
uh, life is good and life is deep and rich and meaningful sort of a picture. So unthought known is my choice uh, for the banger off of Backspacer. Yeah, it, it is a great song, you know, and, and I, I do have to agree with that one. I mean, it wasn't all it wasn't all Point Break 2 for me, you know, like that was <laughs> that was one that I definitely got with, with Point Break with that with that movie to me being the classic version of something that was unintentionally funny. You know, that some some of the songs lyrically to me, you said that they didn't they didn't seem hokey to you. They did come off that way to me. But that's, you know, maybe it's where you're at when you're listening to it. You know, I was on the way to take my daughter to a doctor's appointment to find out if she had COVID when I was listening to it. So I probably wasn't in a great mental, you know, mental state, right, when I was listening to it. So I think that a lot of with music, a lot of what you take away from it, you know, is a product of the environment that you're, that you're in when you listen to it. For sure. And spoiler alert, she does not have COVID. That is correct. <laughs> that is correct. All right. That's, that's a relief. Here are a couple notes uh, about some of the other tracks. Like uh, there's a lot of up-tempo stuff. Supersonic is just Matt Cameron on the drums doing his thing. And it's literally a song about how music is cool. Like, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm on board. You're right. Yeah, on he board. probably wrote that in a half hour. I could, I could understand how that came together quickly. <laughs> then there's, Force of Nature, which as the meteorologist here on the podcast, anytime he mentions hurricanes and gales and cyclones, my ears perk up. And Force of Nature is this song where I, I think anyway that, you know, it's about looking inward in the context of a relationship. There's a guy standing on the shore looking over to the horizon, hoping his partner comes back. But it reminded me of the song we reluctantly liked on Riot Act, Love Boat Captain. It's another love song from Eddie Vedder, even though musically perhaps it wouldn't come across that way on the first couple of listens. I think it's so cool how at the very end of Backspacer, uh, there's this song called The End. And I didn't know if it was about death. I think it's about the end of a relationship, but it's just a really cool song. And at the very end, it, almost sounds like this relationship is taking its final breath and then it just kind of comes to an abrupt end and like it's just a goosebumpy sort of chilling spine tingly finish to an album for me although they do tack on better man a live track as sort of some bonus content on the end of backspacer but i think it goes from maybe not all that thoughtful to really thoughtful over the span of the album. And I just like that Backspacer feels energetic and it doesn't have a lot of that muddled down content that we were complaining about in parts of Binaural and Riot Act. Understood. So why don't, uh, since you enjoyed this album a little more than I did, why don't you, uh, why don't you pick a song from, from Backspacer to, uh, to, to take us out with on this album? All right, I won't torture you with Amongst the Waves, even though it's a cool <laughs> song. I will go with Unthought Known because it is a pretty grand song and I really dug it. See the path cut by the moon for you to walk on. See the waves on distant shores awaiting your
Okay, so uh, in 2013, the band put out uh, an album called Lightning Bolt. For me, I'm going to let Justin do most of the content on this album because in my ranking of Pearl Jam albums, there were, you know, there was one through 10 and then there was a 19 and 19 was Lightning Bolt. <laughs> oh my. Um, so this one for me, I just, you know, it, it didn't connect. I, you know, I, I tried listening to it a couple of times. For me, you know, I read a review of this, of this album after listening to it uh, to see if somebody else could verbalize my thoughts on it. And I did read the Pitchfork review, which understandably is more brutal than it should be. But it said that, you know, this album, is the is the putting on sweatpants of albums <laughs> you know and essentially it was like all right when you've just given up you know what i mean like you put on the sweatpants and just you know and, and, and live to fight another day so that was kind of my impression i'm surprised pitchfork even reviewed all of these albums to be sure this feels mean like the new york times doing a legit food critique of like guy fieri's restaurant in times square it's like <laughs> come on what do you expect I love, this might be one of my favorite openers on any of the albums that we heard. Uh, Getaway is the song. And I don't even really know necessarily what it's about. It sounds like it's kind of personal choice and science versus religion. But I think it's a great synthesis of the band, specifically the drums and the guitars melding with his vocals. And his vocals are very rhythmic. And it's almost like, that brash, punky, thrashy sound from earlier in their career, but evolved and kind of congealed into something new. I think Getaway is a really cool song, but of course they didn't pick that as their single because they don't let me pick the singles. They picked Mind Your Manners, which uh, feels a lot different than the rest of the album. It's also about religion, but it's got this sort of punk feel, which doesn't necessarily jive with the rest of the album because the rest of the album is a little overproduced and there are strings and there are some other instrumentation that we'll talk about. But this made me realize, John, I am as soft as it gets when it comes to punk music back in the nineties in school, bad religion. Yeah. I was on that one album. I listened to the Ramones greatest hits like three times. So I could say I did in high school <laughs> and Pearl jam. It turns out is probably the most punk band even though that's like 33 percent of their content they might be the most punk band that i've ever listened to and i know that's sad well so we're gonna have to do uh we'll have to do a couple of deeper listening podcasts with going into some some actual some true punk i think that would be pretty fun you know and and looking at some of these songs and even with getaway you know one thing that i was struck by is that listening to it the the music itself didn't really strike a chord with me and for me i typically listen to the music way before i ever pay any attention to the lyrics but with this, I picked up on a couple of the things that he was saying. So I actually went and looked up the lyrics to this song and was like, okay, like I could get with the, I could get with the lyrics, kind of an odd twist for my personal music taste. I did like a lot of the lyrics that were, that were used in this album, that song in particular. Now, now that you mentioned it stuck out to me in that way. It's interesting though, because this is one of the albums where I definitely recognize the single Sirens. But I feel like this is also an argument for why I more or less took 20 years off from Pearl Jam. I don't like it. It's cool. I, I don't mind the, the lyrical content, the idea that life is fragile and precious, and the older you get, the more you have to lose. And he wrote it in a hotel room after he'd heard some sirens, and he's thinking about, you know, I've got so much going on in my life, it could all change on a dime, which gives me goosebumps even thinking about. But it's... 
kind of a slow tempo and it's like the Pearl Jam dad ballad, but that never really turns that optimistic corner. I wish they would have just gone with Get Away as the single instead of Sirens, even though it's a super recognizable song. Yeah. And, and you know, that was the only one that I, I, when listening to the album, I was like, I think that I've probably heard this before. Like you're talking about, like, I am absolutely have a soft spot for dad, for dad rock. You know what I mean? Like you put on some dad rock. I'm, I'm game. I'm in. Um, but like with this, you know, again, to go back to the, to the earlier reference, like this is the sweatpants of dad rock. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just doesn't get there for me. I will say it is pretty cool to hear them. And this is perhaps a testament to how consistent their sound is over their career. But you hear a couple of little keyboard uh, tinkles in songs like Lightning Bolt, which was one of the singles. And it's not a big feature of the song. It's just buried into the verses. But it's kind of cool that they're mixing in some new sounds. And then this song in Infallible, which definitely the chorus I recognized. And it's a cool song. It starts off and kind of features in the beginning keyboard. And it's just an un-Pearl Jam-like sound. And people say, oh, all Pearl Jam sounds the same. So I think this is an argument to the contrary. And they were at times dabbling and trying to push things in a bit of a new direction. Well, and for me, it's like, I think that's the argument with why all Pearl Jam should sound the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I listen, it's the it's one of these things that it's like a lot of the a lot of the times with credit with music critics, what you get is if a band does not evolve, then music critics, you know, jump on that as a reason to, you know, to really downplay, you know, the quality of the record. And for me, it's like I listen to Pearl Jam because it sounds like Pearl Jam. You know, it's like that's what I'm that's what I'm there for. You know, so it's like I'm not there to see what Pearl Jam can do with keys. You know what I mean? It's like I want to hear I want you to crank the guitar up play the the overdriven blues notes and let's you know like that's what that's what i want to hear from pearl jam and it's one of those things too and it's like and i get it you know from the perspective of the band it's like damned if you do damned if you don't right there will be plenty of people like me that when you do try something new that i don't like i'm gonna be like just stick with the old stuff you know what i mean and which is totally unfair play even flow play alive (laughs) yeah right which is funny because when you when you get into the next album, they change it up a bunch and I love it. You know what I mean? So it's, it, you know, I guess you, beggars can't be choosers, right? Yeah, and there are a couple of songs that do go into that kind of quiet, contemplative, serious Pearl Jam later in the album, like Pendulum and Swallowed Whole. And they're cool. There's also Sleeping By Myself, which you know is late period Pearl Jam because Eddie Vedder has picked up his ukulele from his times in Hawaii, but basically that's like a song saying, I'm, I'm not good at love. So I'm going to strum my ukulele and sleep by myself tonight. But the one song that really kind of grabbed my attention, I didn't even love it necessarily was yellow moon toward the mm-hmm. end of the album. And it reminded me of something from either yield or no code. And it took me a while to figure it out, but it's a song called low light from yield it's just kind of a chill instrumental track, big picture lyrics, I think talking about the end of life and the world keeps on spinning, very, very Pearl Jam, very, you know, serious. I thought that was pretty cool. And then at the end of the album, Future Days, which is one of these kind of looking back uh, at a relationship, I think this was about a friend who had drowned. So obviously super serious topics, but it kind of came off as a love song almost that is definitely dad rock to me, dad ballad rock to me. 
Uh, so I feel like they're doing a lot of things on Lightning Bolt. It just maybe gets a little bogged down in some of the production. I mean, there are strings on the album. Even though there are some energetic songs, like we talked about the the album opener, maybe it is a little serious at times. And like I said, Sirens, kind of the banner song. This is not what I'm going to be choosing from Lightning Bolt to play. I feel like that, uh, you know, I really liked the lyrics to Get Away. You really liked the song Get Away. Like maybe, you know, I hate to pick an opening track twice, but I think that might be our cut from this one. Pearl Jam's not dumb. They put the good stuff up front. They know what they're doing. This is how they've become a very rich, successful band. Good call. Yeah, you put the shiny apples at the beginning of the display. Going into the last album of the uh, of the catalog uh, is last year's twenty uh, twenties uh, Gigaton, and the only thing that I want to say about this album to start is hell yes, I was so excited when I heard this album. Uh, this album is the reason that uh, that I wanted to to start up with Pearl Jam uh, when we when we decided to do the podcast when we were listing bands that we were discussing doing, uh, having heard this album and and heard. Uh, what I consider to be a very different version of Pearl Jam than what, what I had heard before that I really, really loved. This was the album that inspired it. So for me, when I listened to Pearl Jam, I knew the first three albums and then I had heard nothing until Gigaton came out in 2020. Um, I thought that the press that they did surrounding uh, Gigaton in New York City was awesome. So I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. It's Pearl Jam. Why not? And I listened to it and I was like, okay, I may have been missing a few things. So uh, this album it had the largest space in between albums, I believe in their, in their entire career, you know, and it sounds, it sounded to me like they probably recorded this album. I'm going to guess it wasn't all in one session. It probably was broken up over, over several, over several sections. I think that this album probably got a little bit buried due to COVID because they didn't get to do the tour, you know, to, to support the album. But this album to me just feels like the band gave themselves kind of some room to breathe. Um, the album to me is, you know, it, it's it's patient in the way that it's put together. The songs are a little bit longer, but not in a way that's annoying. It feels like they have a lot to say and they kind of take their time to say it, even in the more up-tempo songs. There's also, you know, areas where I can really hear influences of the band that aren't necessarily like The Who. I listened to this album and I listened to Dance of the Clairvoyance, which was the teaser track that they put out. So before the album was released, uh, they, they dropped uh, Dance of the Clairvoyance. And I remember listening to that and being like, wait a second, did David Byrne or Brian Eno produce this? It really sounds a lot like if Pearl Jam was produced by David Byrne, that's what this song sounds like to me. You know, and it's something that it's got a very, very heavy talking head vibe and I'm into it. My first, my first impression of this album was that I loved it. Uh, every subsequent listen since then, I've continued to love it. Uh, this album shot up uh, even past some of the some of the earlier stuff in their catalog for me, you know, as as albums of theirs that I really like. So what was what was some, some of your impressions? I remember when it came out because it was early in the pandemic, 
like you, I hadn't listened to Pearl Jam in a really long time and it seemed like everyone was talking about it online. So I thought, all right, let me give this a listen. And I listened to it once and I kind of moved on, truth be told. Now that's not uh, an indictment on the album. It has taken me a couple of listens to really sort of soak into all of these late era Pearl Jam albums that we've been talking about. But I love how it starts off. And I think it's in its most Pearl Jammy state in the first couple of tracks, whoever said, and Super Blood Wolf Moon. And I remember hearing that track three, the Dance of the Clairvoyance, and it's so talking heads that I was like looking over my shoulder, like, wait, is this is this for real? And I applaud them for moving their sound in a new direction. And there are certainly Pearl Jam songs that sound like The Who, which is a humongous influence. And I don't say that as a knock, but it's just so unlike what we are used to hearing from Pearl Jam that, you know, even if it's maybe not 100% up my alley, I tip my cap to them because they're trying new stuff. But I think Gigaton starts off pretty cool. I didn't end up loving everything quite as much. I think the first half of the album is probably uh, grabs me than the second half of the album, but that's not to say that there are songs that I don't like. I think that you can really tell how Pearl Jam is polished and has elevated their game. And there are not to my ears, hardly any, any throwaway tracks on this album. And I could see with even more listens, I've probably heard it five times. I could see with even more room to grow, how this would move up the chart for me and my little Pearl Jam personal ranking. I guess like for me, when I, when I think about this album, to me, the sonic textures that are presented in this album are just, they're either better crafted or maybe just more patiently crafted. They use some atypical instrumentation for the band in this album, but they use it in a way where it really adds to the song where in other, you know, albums, like we talked about, in lightning bolt where there are some strings, but it's kind of buried. It's a little bit muddy. Um, you know, when some of those new elements are introduced in this album, to me, they are a little bit more prominent in the song and a little bit better place, a little bit better mixed. Um, and they're able to use that to their advantage a little bit more. The first four songs on the album, as is typical with Pearl Jam, I think there's a lot of albums where we can say, okay, the first four tracks are pretty strong, you know, and this is no exception, you know, to me, dance of the clairvoyance and, Qu- and, and quick escape are probably my favorite two cuts on the, on the, on the whole album. You know, and I see that they are, they're just, they're different in a way that if Pearl Jam were to, were to decide now to evolve as a, as a band into a different kind of sound and they went in this direction, I would be very cool with that. Um, I understand that it's also probably not for everyone. They've had, you know, they've had 10 albums before this one where they've had essentially the same sound, you know, and this one, this one to me starts to break a little bit of new ground. You know, I think it's worth noting also that this album uh, was actually pretty well received critically. Whereas I think that everything, um, everything after No Code has been pretty, pretty badly beat up by the, by the music critics. Uh, even Pitchfork gave this one, I think, either a 6.3 or a 6.5, something like that. And I don't believe that they got out of the fives with any of the other albums. And I think that some of them were like a 4.1. Um, so they really got beat up by Pitchfork, but they like this one. Um, I really wish that Avocado had gotten the same critical acclaim that this one had, because it, to me, it definitely deserves it. Avocado is the, uh, is the to me, is the standout where there are two albums on either side of it that I'm not necessarily crazy about. Avocado, I love. This one, I absolutely love. This is, again, if Pearl Jam is going to evolve in any kind of way, and this is the, this is the direction they decide to go in, 
It's great for me. You know, since this is a podcast from dads talking about music and since Pearl Jam is clearly in the dad phase of their life and has been for decades, I'm sure. I think it's worth noting that uh, seven o'clock, which is kind of middle of the album, it's kind of a political song on Gigaton. Uh, it chugles, which is something that we are contractually obligated to really love and enjoy. I mean, that's like one of the things that links together all the cool indie music that I'm sure we both have in common. But instead of the anxiety of Riot Act's political songs, this is a little more optimistic. The lyrics, freedom is as freedom does, and freedom is a verb. They giveth and they taketh, and you fight to keep what you've earned. That's a lot different than the down-and-out depression that is apparent on Binaural and Riot Act. I think that even in some of their protest songs, the fact that they had this sense of hope is a sign of you know, being mentally in a really good place, even songs to your point where they're not super flashy, like take the long way. It illustrates how they've grown as a band. It's up tempo. It's Matt Cameron on drums. I don't know a whole lot about what they're saying other than I always take the long way that leads me back to you, which is what it is, but it's got a lot of melody brimming under the surface and the guitar solo at the end, like really goes there. And I love how on this album, it seems like perhaps uh, more so than any other album, maybe since avocado the guitar can really make or break a song and in a lot of instances like pushes it over the edge for me and i think that that's a really cool facet and even at the end of the album river cross i read that he's playing eddie is playing this like 1800s pump organ which you know is kind of like a classic pearl jam sound in very small snippets big picture lyrics about life and the big scheme of things and the world keeps on spinning and more imagery weather imagery which this meteorologist you know is never going to hate on (laughs) uh but it's just kind of a good example of pearl jam in a nutshell i don't dislike gigaton maybe i just need a little more room to grow along with it but it does seem like a fitting conclusion as we've traced their growth from 2000 all the way to 2020 and that's a long time for a band to be together especially when you tack on the 10 years before that and it's really consistent how their sound has managed to stay the same they always sound like pearl jam but if you do do this deeper listening that we're doing you can appreciate the subtle ways in which they are evolving and you'd have to otherwise you'd go crazy if you were playing all the tracks from 10 and you know the big hits from the 90s like i'm proud of pearl jam not that they care for being invested enough to evolve and to take the music in some direction i think it's cool I think it's cool that they can both evolve and but and be completely unapologetically Pearl Jam, you know. And I think that that's really cool that they've had a very very consistent sound for such a long career. That I think that at this point, I think that Ten came out in '91, so I think that we're you know we're we're now you know, it's been 30 years, you know what I mean? Which is a, which is a hell of a run for any band. Um, so to pick a track uh, from this album, I think that if anybody has heard anything from this album, it's probably Dance of the Clairvoyance. I think it's probably the most interesting uh, track that's on that's on the album. Uh, but just, just to give a little bit of a different flavor uh, for the album, I think that let's let's go ahead and, and play uh, some of Quick Escape. Yeah. Yeah, we're live on our back horse. Left and right to me. 
I've never listened to more Pearl Jam than I have for the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's been since I was literally in high school driving around my Toyota Tercel with Live on Two Legs blasting from my aftermarket CD player, feeling like a boss since I've heard this much Pearl Jam. But this deeper listening gave me a deeper appreciation for the band. I kind of ignored them for the last 20 years. I'm a noob. I've never seen Pearl Jam in concert. I need to fix that as soon as possible, and I'm going to fix that as soon as possible. So this project really got me hyped and really gave me a deeper appreciation for who they are as a band. I love the early stuff. Who doesn't? But I really, really appreciate how they've grown from kids in their 20s and young 30s to people who I'm sure have AARP cards, if not some <laughs> of them pushing 60 a few years from now. So this was a really cool project for me. Yeah. You know, and, and it's funny when I, uh, when I think about early Pearl Jam, you know, it, it, again, it's, it's the kind of music that puts me right back in the same time and place. And for me, you know, I, I played in a, in a band in high school and, you know, with a guy uh, named Hugo Mark. So I have not talked to really since high school. So if you're listening, Hey, Hugo, um, <laughs> but we used to actually, we covered uh, corduroy and, you know, off of Vitology and, you know, and, and I can remember being in my other friend, Jamie Bennett's uh, house and listening to 10 and verses on, you know, on repeat essentially. So, you know, th this music really puts me right back in that same time and place. And then I heard Gigaton um, at the beginning of last year and got really excited about it. And when I saw that there was tour dates that were coming up again, I haven't seen them since the nineties. Um, and I was like, man, I've got to get tickets for this. Uh, they were impossible to get tickets to Madison Square Garden to see. Um, so if, you know, uh, hopefully both of us can go see Pearl Jam again, I would recommend becoming a member of the 10 Club because apparently that's how you score the tickets with uh, with Pearl Jam. But it, it's really been a lot of fun to, to dig into this band. And even, you know, even with the stuff that I wasn't as fond of, I'm, I'm really glad that I listened to it. And I'm glad that I now have a much deeper understanding of the arc of this, of this band's career. And, uh, you know, the, the band has been remarkably consistent. You know, I, I do have to say that. So with that, I just, you know, thank you guys. If you're, if you're still with us and you're still listening, we very much appreciate it. Uh, this has really been a lot of fun. I can't wait for the next one. Um, so thank you for joining us on, on Deeper Listening. Um, you know, we can't wait to do more research and take this deep dive into, into our next artist, uh, which I believe is Funkadelic. Oh, yeah. I'm excited. I'm, I'm a Funkadelic noob. Don't tell anyone, but I have a lot of learning to do. I can't wait. And I've, I've definitely got uh, some favorite Funkadelic albums. Uh, I know that most people immediately go to Maggot Brain. That is not my first pick. Little spoiler alert for the next episode. Standing, standing on the verge of getting it on is one of my favorite albums, literally of all time. What, what Eddie, Eddie Hazel does on that album is just incredible. So we're going to go from one Eddie to another. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast. And please feel free to leave us a review. You can also find us on Twitter at Listen Deeper or on Instagram at Deeper Listening Podcast. We'd love to know what you think, what you like, or what you don't. We'd love to hear from you. We'll look forward to talking to you next time. Theme music created by the incredibly talented Thomas Wing. Please check out his Bandcamp page at Blackout Makeout. <laughs>